The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Caleb Benjamin, Internet Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for October 28, 2023. This week, Turkish President Erdogan made headlines when he said Israel is committing atrocities against civilians in its military operations in Gaza. Erdogan also broke from NATO allies by insisting that Hamas is not a terrorist organization. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from July 3, 2018, in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Amanda Sloat to discuss Erdogan's victory in the Turkish elections, the crackdown in Turkey and the justifications for it, friction points in the U.S.-Turkish relationship, and what comes next for Turkey, the United States, and the EU. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 3rd, 2018. Recep Tayyip Erdogan won the Turkish elections the other day and becomes the first president under Turkey's new empowered presidentialist system. His party, in coalition with ultranationalists, will control the parliament as well, so it's a big big win for the Turkish president. It may be a loss for democratic values. Joining me to talk all things Turkey in the Jungle Studio this week, Amanda Sloat, the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at Brookings. Sloat served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Southern Europe and Eastern Mediterranean Affairs, where she had responsibility for U.S.-Turkish relations. We talked about the election results. We talked about the crackdown in Turkey and the justifications for it. We talked about friction points in U.S.-Turkish relations, and we talked about what comes next for Turkey, the United States, and the EU. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 326, Amanda Sloat Talks Turkey. Let's start with the results. Uh, Most people are aware that there was a Turkish election and that uh, Prime Minister President Erdogan won. Uh, What happened? I think the best way to describe the results is that it was as expected and yet with surprises. Uh, So as you said, Erdogan won the presidency. That was an expected result, although many people, especially looking at the opinion polls, thought that the balloting was going to go to a second round. uh, But he won in the the first round. And his numbers were actually fairly consistent with when his last presidential election was held in 2014. And also with the divide of people that voted for the constitutional uh, reform amendment. 
his uh, AKP party uh, lost its parliamentary majority. Uh, so there was also an expectation that the AKP was going to lose its governing majority in parliament. The opinion polls were suggesting that a coalition of opposition parties was going to win. Uh, but Erdogan's AKP, in coalition with the MHP, an ultra-nationalist party, managed to secure a governing majority in the, the parliament. So we have Erdogan uh, re-elected as president uh, with greater powers under this new executive-style presidency. And we have Erdogan's party in coalition with the nationalists controlling parliament. All right. So you you allude to uh, this new package of presidentialist reforms, uh, the Turkish state that Erdogan uh, takes over now as president is different from the one that we've gotten used to over a protracted period of time. What does it mean that he's been elected president now? What powers does the Turkish presidency have that it didn't used to? So this election cemented the changes that the Turkish people had voted for in April of 2017, and it formally changes the Turkish political system from a parliamentary system to a presidential system. So in the past, the presidency was more of a figurehead. Now you actually have a presidential-style system, somewhat similar to what we have here in the United States, but with a lot less checks and balances. So the role of prime minister has been abolished. Uh, Erdogan as president is able to appoint ministers, to issue decrees, to appoint senior members of the judiciary, to investigate civil servants. So even though I said it's a system somewhat similar to what we have in the United States, the checks and balances that we enjoy in our system with Congress and with the judiciary have been significantly weakened now in this new Turkish model. Is it meaningfully a democracy? It's an interesting question, and it's one that's been up for debate in in the last couple of weeks. Part of the question, I guess, comes down to how you define democracy. Uh, Turkey has had a history of free and fair elections since 1950. Uh, These have started to be challenged within the last couple of polls when there was allegations of fraud with the constitutional referendum. Uh, The election that was held in 2015 ended up being rerun when Erdogan's party lost its governing majority. I think the general assessment of this current election that we saw is that the elections were clearly unfair. Uh, You had a state of emergency in place. You had the Kurdish presidential candidate campaigning from jail. Uh, The state of emergency meant that you were not able to have large-scale protests or demonstrations. 90% of the media is operated by cronies of Erdogan, uh, and Erdogan certainly employed large amounts of state resources in, in running this election campaign. That said, I think people generally agree that the elections were free in the sense that there does not appear to have been large-scale manipulation at the ballot box and that the vote largely represented the will of the Turkish people. Uh, Yet at the same time, you have a weakening of the democratic institutions separate from the presidency. And you also have significant limits on what civil society is is able to do and what the free press is able to do in terms of of oversight. So since the coup... The last numbers that I heard were like 40,000 people had been detained or jailed. Uh, A large number of civil servants have lost their jobs in kind of these uh, ghoulinist, I use this term uh, advisedly, witch hunts. Um, And, you know, it is kind of odd that in that environment they have elections 
in which they're not tampering with votes because they're kind of doing everything else, right? They're locking up political opponents. They're, they're shutting down media that they don't like. And so how confident are we that the vote is not rigged? I think one thing that people often fail to understand in the West is that Erdogan is genuinely popular with a large segment of the Turkish population. And so the results have been fairly consistent and they have broadly shown almost a 50-50 split within the, the country. So he has not needed to do full-scale manipulation, you know, Russia style to ensure that he's winning the election because he does have the support of a broad amount of, of the base, people that are voting on the basis of pocketbook politics. His party came to power because it had lots of economic reforms, and he has very successfully ginned up the the economy. Uh, second, elections still matter in Turkey. These elections were supposed to have been held in November 2019, and Erdogan moved them forward 18 months. And a large part of that was because of the fact that the economy was, was tanking and there was concern about how he was going to do if he waited an additional period of time. So again, if you're going to fully manipulate the election results, then why bother moving up the date? The opposition historically has has been quite weak. And so one of the silver linings coming out of this election was the fact that the opposition actually launched a very credible and energetic campaign and that they did as well as they did. Uh, the Kurds thought cost crossed the 10 percent threshold to get into parliament. Uh, the opposition candidate from the CHP, the main opposition party, got over 30 percent. And there was a woman, Meryl Ashkenar, who broke from the Nationalist Party and created a brand new party that was also able to pull around 20%. So it's actually the most diverse parliament that we've had in Turkey's history in terms of the, the representation. So on one hand, if you have, you know, it's like in the United States, if, if all we had was Fox News and all we had was President Trump speaking on television, and this was the only image of governance and political ideas that people in the United States were able to get, that certainly is going to influence how people are thinking about things. And so what's extraordinary, actually, is even though that is the media and the political landscape, the opposition was able to poll upwards of, of 50% under those conditions. And so one of the challenges that you're going to have in Turkish society going forward which again is is somewhat similar to what we have in the U.S., is a very deeply divided country. Uh, lots of polarization around questions of identity and religion and politics. And that's, that's going to remain a challenge going forward. One way to understand this election is that it represents the consolidation of Erdogan's power. Another way to understand it is that it will facilitate the future consolidation. That is, now you have him in a presidentialist system with a, uh, with a governing coalition in, in parliament. Uh, he's got all these new powers. This is the opportunity to create a dictatorship uh, where there has been relatively, with occasional coups, stable parliamentary democracy for a good long time. On the other hand, what you're describing is an optimistic landscape where despite the media landscape, the opposition did relatively well. Uh, it's a quite diverse parliament. And so I guess my question is, how optimistic or pessimistic are you about what the next few years in terms of the Turkish democratic landscape looks like? 
I think the next couple of years are going to be very difficult. Uh, I certainly don't want to portray an overly optimistic picture, but I think in these difficult times in global governance, I try and find silver linings where I can. Uh, I also don't want to be overly pessimistic because I think there still is a vibrant opposition in Turkey, albeit one that is now going to have to work out how to posture itself uh, in light of Erdogan having these increasing powers. There's elections for local councils in March, and those elections matter. And Erdogan has already been making public comments with an eye to those elections and wanting to try and win those elections. And the economy in Turkey remains in very difficult condition. And so Erdogan can control a lot of things politically he can't control all market forces. And so I think to the extent that there continues to be a crackdown on on civil society in Turkey, a very risky business environment, that's going to be damaging for the country. And so I think he also needs to keep an eye to that. Uh, and additionally, parliament is much weaker, but parliament also matters. And so I think He's going to have to engage with the political process in order to get done some of what he wants to get done. And as I said earlier, his control in parliament depends on being in a coalition with this ultranationalist party. And they have some areas of overlap, but not entirely. And so there is likely to be friction within that coalition at some point as well. So let's break that down for a minute. What is a Turkish ultranationalist and how does it differ from uh, a Turkish quasi-Islamist a la the AKP? Like wh what does that coalition consist of? I think one of the main areas that the MHP is very concerned about is protecting the security and the viability of the nation state. So they are currently angling to get political positions in terms of the defense ministry, in terms of the interior ministry. They are going to be very opposed to any sort of reconciliation with the Kurds. Uh, Erdogan several years ago had started a peace process with the PKK. It seems very unlikely likely within this coalition that that is going to be able to move forward. Uh, it's also likely to see them taking a much harder line position on engagement with the, the Kurds in, in Syria. And so their focus is very much going to be on these uh, anti-Syrian, anti-Kurd, to an extent, anti-Western agendas uh, within, the, within the country. On the one hand, Turkey seems to Americans very far away. And on the other hand, Turkey is one of these countries that is uh, oddly central to a huge amount of what the United States ends up needing to do. Why should Americans care about domestic internal Turkish politics? Well, first and foremost, Turkey is a NATO ally. So it is part of this Western military alliance that the United States belongs to. Uh, Turkey sits in a very strategic location overlapping between Europe and the Middle East. And Turkey is very central to a number of our core interests in Europe and the Middle East right now, specifically in terms of migration, which we're seeing debates over the last couple of weeks in Germany and Europe playing out. And, and Turkey remains a central figure to trying to resolve that. We also need Turkey to address counterterrorism concerns and to try and address the situation in Syria. 
I think it is in the United States' interest to have a Turkey that is led by a strong, democratically elected government that respects rule of law. Uh, the more effective Turkey's internal politics are, the better able, I believe, we are to be able to, to partner with them. I think there's been a risk in the last couple of years that U.S. policy towards Turkey has become very narrow and is seen primarily through the lens of Syria and through counterterrorism. But if you actually look at where Turkey sits, it's the key to a number of broader interests, migration, CT, which I mentioned, resolution to the situation in uh, Cyprus. It has interests in Armenia, in Israel, in energy politics, in, in the region. And so the the state of, of Turkey's domestic politics should also matter to us in the context of trying to address some of these regional concerns. All right. So Erdogan has not been good for U.S.-Turkish relations, whatever his other merits may be. Um, he started as somebody who, you know, seemed to have a, a kind of solicitude for the kind of marriage of democratic culture and uh, and Islamist kind of inflected politics, but has become kind of increasingly anti-Western and less oriented in that direction. The traditional Turkish-Israeli relationship, which was historically very strong, has become quite poisonous. Um, what does an empowered Erdogan AKP government look like for Turkish relations with the West over the next few years? I think it's going to remain difficult. Uh, I think some things have been better at working level than they necessarily appear on the surface. Turkey-Israeli relations, for example, had been quite close for a number of years with an increasing amount of, of intelligence sharing, uh, increasing business cooperation, certainly following the Mavi Marmara incident, that uh, relationship deteriorated. It, it slowly has been moving to a, a much better place, although the spat over the moving of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem tended to dampen things and led to the withdrawal of, of ambassadors. Uh, Turkey's relationship with the EU has also been difficult. Uh, I think a certain amount of blame for that can be placed on the EU side in the sense that it is difficult for Turkey to maintain its interest in joining a union that doesn't necessarily want to have it as a member. And so even from the beginning of accession talks, there were attitudes, particularly by French and German leaders, that were calling for a partnership arrangement with Turkey rather than full membership. And so I think that really slowed what had been a lot of the initial momentum in Turkey to try and join the the European Union, uh, although that that process is is staggering on, although those largely frozen at at the moment. Uh, and you're right that when Erdogan came into power, there was initially high expectations, especially in the U.S. by President Obama, that Turkey was going to be this model democracy, uh, majority uh, Muslim country that was a democratic state in the Middle East and in NATO. That was going to be a partner to the United States. That was going to be a model for some of these countries going through the Arab Spring transition. Uh, it was the first country that Obama made a bilateral visit to after Canada when he became president. Uh, so hopes were certainly very high. And, and there was a lot of disappointment in, in the subsequent years as, as there has been this, this drip. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. 
And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I remember, I mean, when Erdogan was first in government, I I met with him uh, when he came through Washington, and I remember being completely fooled. Uh, I thought he was the real deal, and I was, you know, like, I reacted to him like this is this is what the democratic future looks like, you know, and, and I, you know, could not have been more wrong. You know, there's there's debate about the extent to which Erdogan is simply returning to form and the extent to which he has been responding to events that have shifted him in a in a particular direction. Uh, another point I would make is I think there's not sufficient understanding in the West about the reality of the coup attempt against him. Uh, there certainly have been a lot of conspiracy theories that maybe Erdogan uh, perpetuated this coup against himself as an opportunity to strengthen power. Uh, you mentioned the number of people that that were in prison. Uh, And Erdogan was certainly very quick to note that the United States and Europe, with the exception of the UK, were quite slow to respond to the coup attempt in terms of condemning the coup plotters and uh, restoring their faith in Erdogan as the democratically elected leader of the, the country. You have no doubt as to the reality of the coup as a genuine coup attempt against the elected government of Turkey. Uh, that is my assessment, yes, is that it was a legitimate coup attempt. Or an, an illegitimate coup attempt, as the case may be. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I, but if you look at, at what happened, you know, Erdogan reportedly was within minutes of being captured or killed. The palace was bombed. The parliament was bombed. Uh, F-16s were flying sonic booms over over Istanbul. Uh it's it's had a deep psychological traumatic effect on the Turkish population. And I think in that sense, the initial security crackdown was was understandable. You know, you can think about what happened in the United States in the wake of 9-11. Uh, we had the introduction of the Patriot Act. It eventually led to a discussion about how much privacy and civil liberties we were willing to give up in the name of security. Uh, and then there ended up being a bit of a rebalancing of some of those things in the subsequent years. The critique you can level against Turkey is that there hasn't been that rebalancing and that the democratic system has not been sufficiently strong to enable a course correction on on some of those measures. Uh, The state of emergency has been in place for two years now since the coup attempt in July 2016. Uh, There was a strong belief that Erdogan wanted to keep this into place in the run up to the election because it enabled these limits on media, on, on public demonstrations. But there is an expectation now 
now that that state of emergency is is going to be lifted. The question is what ends up replacing it. Uh, the Turks like to point to the French model. Uh, the French had a state of emergency in place for about two years as well after the attacks in Paris. That was then lifted when they brought in new counterterrorism and security legislation. Uh, so the Turks will point to that as a model of, of what they are potentially looking to do. Uh, the difference, of course, was that the French state of emergency and the French legislation was not imposing the same limits on people's civil liberties. It was not jailing large numbers of people uh, the way the, the Turks have been. We've managed to get this far in the conversation without talking about Fatula Gulen. But if one of Erdogan's people were in the room, we wouldn't have gotten this far without That's talking true. about Gulen. How big a deal is uh, Gulen's presence in Pennsylvania likely to be in the next few years in the U.S.-Turkish relationship in particular? I think it remains a huge irritant in the bilateral relationship. The Turks very strongly believe that Fethullah Gulen and his Gulenist followers in Turkey were behind the coup. They believe there are ongoing efforts to try and undermine the Turkish government. Uh, and the fact that he is resident in the United States suggests to the Turks that the U.S. is not taking their domestic security seriously. Uh, you know, friends don't harbor friends terror suspects, and they don't understand why we are not prepared to deport him. So, so before you go on, let, let's just unpack that because that is an entirely reasonable position on the part of the Turks to the extent the factual predicate is accurate and an entirely unreasonable position on the part of the Turks to the extent the factual predicate is inaccurate. And ditto a lot of the domestic crackdown, which is a uh, purportedly a response to Gulenists and aimed at Gulenists has a very different valence. If you look at and you believe there are sort of Gulenists under every rock and they were actually plotting the coup, then if you kind of believe this is a sort of crazy witch hunt that, uh, that, you know, a kind of modern Turkish McCarthyism. And so, before you go any further, I'm just interested in your sense of the merits of this. In your judgment, were the Gulenists behind the coup? And are there a lot of Gulenists that, you know, all over Turkish society that are actually being purged? Or is this just a label that is being tossed around to justify removal or, of people from positions who you don't want? And is Fethullah Gulen behind the opposition to, you know, to Erdogan within Turkey? I mean, I'm largely persuaded by the argument that Gulenists were responsible for the, the coup. Uh, the one thing about this that is complicated and that the Turks don't like to mention is that when Erdogan initially came to power, he worked in partnership with Fethullah Gulen. So part of the reason that a lot of these Gulenists are in senior positions is because Erdogan and his AKP affiliates helped move these Gulenists into these authoritative positions. Uh, the Gulenists were also quite active in terms of lobbying in the West, in terms of engaging Congress. Many of them had lived in the West for many years. They were English speakers. They had good relationships. And so for an extended period of time, 
Erdogan and Gulen had an effective partnership in their desire to push back on the secular military that had been exerting authority within uh, the country. The problem is once the military was removed from politics, once the two of them no longer had a shared enemy, they essentially turned on each other and it began uh, infighting between them. And there was a lot of tit-for-tat activities that were happening in the years running up to the coup in terms of Erdogan not putting Gulenis on senior party lists, uh, in terms of Gulenis judges and prosecutors bringing corruption charges against Erdogan and other uh, affiliates. Uh, Some people have suggested a lot of this evidence was the basis for the trial against Hakan Attila in New York earlier this year in terms of accusations of Turkey violating U.S. sanctions on on Iran. Uh, And so a lot of this back and forth then ended up culminating in the coup attempt. Now, part of the problem with the Gulenist organization is that it's a very large movement and it's not very transparent. And so I think you certainly have a large number of Gulenists who have joined the organization for religious reasons, who believe in its tenets of interfaith dialogue and are participants in the organizations for those reasons. Uh, So the problem is with the purges following this, Just because you are a Gulenist does not necessarily mean you were aware of or supportive of the threats to the Turkish state. But I think generally it is a problem when you have a large number of senior government officials in positions of power who are taking instructions from an organization that is outside the the government apparatus. And I think the the term deep state tends to get thrown around. It is something that people have now started to use a lot in the United States. Uh, It really is a very different thing, but it's a difficult concept, I think, for many Americans to understand because we simply don't have a parallel state organization operating here, despite what many might believe. So if you were still in the U.S. government, what would your attitude be toward Gulen's presence in Pennsylvania? I mean, I think the U.S. over the last couple of years since the coup has tried to engage with Turkey on this issue. Uh, The Turks have made an extradition request. The Turks have said that they have sent over 75 boxes of of documents to the Justice Department. Uh, My successor, Jonathan Cohen, said at a conference that his Justice Department colleagues have told him that they have spent more time and and manpower investigating these claims than they have since the case against the Shah of Iran. So I don't think there is any sense that the U.S. government is not taking this seriously. Uh, The problem, of course, is that these prosecutors in the Justice Department need to have sufficiently compelling evidence that they can persuade a federal judge of, of probable cause. And my understanding thus far is they simply don't have compelling proof to to, to make the, the case between Gulen in Pennsylvania and, and what followers did. Uh, the Turks certainly have large amounts of circumstantial evidence pointing to known Gulenists who met with, with Gulen in Pennsylvania in the days leading up to the coup, known Gulenists who were involved in some of the activities around the coup, but they're does not seem to be a smoking gun that directly links Gulen himself to the coup attempt. So in other words, it is possible from what you're saying, or even likely from what you're saying, that Erdogan is deeply affected by the coup, which he reasonably attributes to the Gulenist movement. It angers him that the head of that movement is living under the uh, auspices of the United States, protecting him, but that the evidence connecting him directly to the coup is actually not sufficient to justify an extradition. And so everybody is sort of behaving rationally under the circumstances. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's a a accurate summary. Now, the argument that the Turks will make is, come on, you guys did extraordinary rendition. We know that you're willing to do things around the law. Why are you choosing to be so legalistic in in this case? There's also people that argue that there is a certain political benefit to Erdogan by having Gulen in the U.S. because if he got him back, he would suddenly have to do something with him and Gulen could potentially become a greater martyr for the cause by by being in Turkey. Uh, but it, it certainly remains uh, uh, an irritant. Uh, it has gotten surpassed by Turkish annoyance at U.S. cooperation with the Kurds in Syria as a, a much more live and immediate issue that that Erdogan was was focused on. Okay, so let's talk about that before we wrap up. Gulen, as you say, is not the only source of irritation. There are uh, there are others. What are the big areas of friction between the other big areas of friction between between Erdogan and us these days? So in terms of Turkish talking points, Gulen is certainly one, as we've discussed. The other has been longtime Turkish unhappiness with American cooperation with a faction of Syrian Kurds, the YPG in Syria, uh, which the U.S. military started partnering with in the fight against the Islamic State. Uh, so we probably don't have time to go into the full history of, of all of that, but it has been a another irritant in the, the bilateral relationship. Uh, Turkey has argued with justification that the YPG is affiliated with an offshoot of the PKK, which the United States and the European Union have both designated as a terrorist organization. So again, from the Turkish perspective, not only are we housing their number one domestic terrorist, we are also cooperating on their border with their other main terrorist threat, this affiliate of the, the PKK. So from Turkey's perspective, the United States is not being particularly sympathetic to their domestic security concerns. And so it was a long process in the Obama administration that has continued in the Trump administration to try and find ways to assuage Turkish concerns about U.S. cooperation with the Syrian Kurds at the same time that we're trying to prosecute the fight against the Islamic State in Syria. So all of that creates a pretty challenging environment, right? You have the newly a newly empowered, not so democratic, quasi-authoritarian presidentialist with a parliamentary majority that depends on ultranationalists, who has uh, legitimate, as you describe them, anxieties about a number of areas of U.S. policy. Um, what's the right way for the U.S. to engage Turkey going forward? Well, I would also be remiss if I didn't outline American talking points about unhappiness on our side with, with the Turkish government, and many of those stem from rule of law concerns. Uh, there's continued frustration with the action of Erdogan's bodyguards here in Sheridan Circle about a year ago when they beat up protesters. Uh, you and I are currently sitting in the Brookings Institution, where people may remember when Erdogan last spoke here, there was also a scuffle of his bodyguards with protesters uh, outside. Well, that was a fun day. Uh, yes. Uh, there is uh, continued frustration with the imprisonment of Americans. Pastor Andrew Brunson has been the main rallying cry, a, a Christian pastor who has been in Turkey for upwards of 30 years and seems to have gotten caught up in this, this sweep of people that were seen as having 
anything to do with with Gulenis or Kurds. So he remains imprisoned on on spurious charges. We also have two Turkish employees of U.S. consulates who remain in prison, accused of having affiliated with Gulenis or with Kurds, as well as a number of of other Americans. Uh, we also have Turkey planning to buy an S-400 missile defense system from the Russians, which would not be compatible with NATO systems. Uh, and there's also concerns about the security implications for the F-35s, the American fighter jets, as Turkey is part of a consortium that would be taking on these these F-35s. And so there's a number of grievances on, on the American side as well. And we're seeing particularly strong attitudes on these things coming out of Congress. I think the administration is very much in a position of wanting to try and preserve the bilateral relationship, wanting to try and find ways to move this forward. Uh, Tillerson visited in March and had a series of successful conversations. The Turkish foreign minister was here recently and met with Pompeo. They developed a, a roadmap to try and address some of the Turkish concerns with the Syrian Kurds uh, moving forward. Uh, but Congress has increasingly taken a, a hard line out of growing frustration with what's happening in, in Turkey, uh, putting legislation, for example, in the or provisions in the, the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, that would prohibit the transfer of these F-35s if Turkey goes forward with the S-400s as well as if Turkey continues to imprison Brunson and and some of these other American citizens. So part of the challenge that the U.S. administration is going to have in trying to maintain relations with Turkey is dealing with growing frustration in Congress about a lot of the domestic things that are happening in, in Turkey. The challenge, to get back to your original question, for both the U.S. and for Europe is that Turkey, for better or worse, remains a NATO ally. Uh, if that were ever to change, the country that's benefiting the most from this rupture between Turkey and the West is Russia. Uh, and so I think it's not in our interest to turn away from Turkey. I think we need to continue to try and find ways of, of engaging with them. We have a lot of practical policy interests that we need to cooperate with them on. Uh, but I think we also need to continue to speak up about a lot of these human rights abuses beyond simply Brunson but also a lot of what's happening on, on the domestic side. And we also need to continue to find a way to give some sort of hope and encouragement to the 50% of the population that is not happy with the direction that their country is, is going. Uh, again, to return to the American analogy, you have half the country that, that doesn't like a lot of the policies that we're seeing. And I think it's very similar in Turkey. Uh, so obviously, governments need to respond to the actions of governments. But I think it's also important to remember that there is a large segment of the population that is interested in moving things in a different direction. Amanda Sloat, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. I don't need to warn you again. Go give us that rating on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast distribution service you use. Thanks this week to Amanda for coming by. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our audio engineer this week is Matt Kahn. Our music is, of course, as ever, performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.